This is Sex and Ethics, or as we like to say it, Sex and Ethics. <laughs> I'm Sharon <laughs> Lamb, and uh, my co-host is Madeline Brot. Today we are going to uh, we're going to stay on our good run now of commenting on the news within a week of the news coming out. And- <laughs> It's just too bad there's so much news we have to respond to. I know. Anyway, what came out uh, this week was guidelines for uh, the changes to Title IX from Betsy DeVos, our Secretary of Education, who's been working on these for a few years now. It's not unexpected, right, Marilyn? Uh, Yeah, the release, I think, was unexpected. But they put out these uh, proposed guidelines earlier this year, and everyone did not like them. I think even our APAs had a a decision against them, which I think is pretty pretty significant to say, because we are sometimes very progressive in comparison to APA, so. Right, well, you know that um, when Madeline says our APA, she means American Psychological Association, not American Psychiatric Association, but I'm going to change that and say her APA since. Oh, yes. (laughs) Since I resigned from APA a few years ago after the Hoffman Report came out, you can all read about that on my website, Mm -hmm. sharonlam.com under why I quit APA. We won't go into that in this episode, but... I think it might be an interesting one to talk about, definitely, though, because I'm still possibly delusionally optimistic that (laughs) systems can change. Yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with sex, though. We'll we'll find the sex angle in it. I'm sure. There's got to be one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so today we're going to talk about Betsy DeVos's Title IX revisions. But first, let me just say, since I was alive during when Title IX was signed initially, and I don't think you were, this was 1972, Mm. June 23rd, which was going to become my anniversary at a later date, 18 years later. But yeah, but June 23rd, 1972, Nixon signed an education amendment to prevent sex discrimination at universities. And it was all about athletics then. It Mm -hmm. was about letting girls play. (laughs) As some ad for some company we're not going to promote right now had. It was a great ad campaign, Let Me Play. Oh, yes. I I have seen those. Yeah. Anyway, girls were mostly spectators to boys sports. All the um, money was going into boys sports. And I think I read that in 1979, only 7% of varsity high school athletes were girls. And then in 2001, it was 43%. So it had a huge, huge impact on sports girls and women. And this, of course, only applied to those institutions that accepted federal funding. Other institutions mm-hmm. could just, you know, do whatever they want. Yeah, I think yeah. It's, a, it's a success. I definitely think there's farther to go, definitely, with kind of inclusion in women's sports. But what I think is really exciting about Title IX is how people have since kind of used like Ruth Bader Ginsburg-esque 
kind of ways of thinking about how can I use this, legis this legislation to kind of get my foot in the door to create greater changes inside of higher education for gender equity. So, and that's what's happened over the years, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, you probably know more than I do about that, but that Title IX then just got, it didn't get expanded. It was just, it was just interpreted um, yes. to mean, to apply to all sorts of discrimination in education. Yay. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's really shown off how like successful it's been because now I think the highest proportion of people who have bachelor's degrees are black women, which I think says a lot about how our educational system has changed and has provided greater, you know, supports for marginalized folks, wow. uh, which is why this episode is such a bummer for us to record because the gutting of this is really, really difficult. It's um, a back for sure. Can I just ask you something? Maybe you don't know mm -hmm. this, but for years and years of sexual assault prevention and rape prevention, I mean, do you know if the rape statistics have gone down or are people still getting, is it too hard to tell because reporting changes depending on the circumstances for reporting? I mean, what are we doing? We put so much energy into this. Is it having any mm. effect? So from my understanding, no, but we have all those issues about ways that we're getting those numbers. So schools are motivated to report that no assaults occur. Part of what Kirby Dick's um, documentary, The Hunting Ground, talks about, that some schools are falsely reporting that there were no assaults or under-reporting assaults because it makes them look more attractive to potential students. There's also the kind of continued expectation that women subject themselves to this really difficult process that we're going to talk more about in depth, and that a lot of people don't necessarily label their experiences of a sexual assault as an assault, and so don't even kind of move it forward. So I don't know. I think it's probably likely better in the end, but I don't think we'll have any numbers in the near future to kind of prove that. You know, I'm going to write into one of my favorite podcasts, Science Versus. Do you know what's her name who runs that Science Versus? No, but she's a oh. fabulous Australian woman. Love her. Oh, Wendy Zuckerman. Yeah, yes. I'm, going write, I'm going to ask her to do a Science Versus on rape statistics. I think that would be amazing. We can have a podcast and link up to her after that comes out. Okay, but let's get back to Title IX because, of course, you know, it has everything to do with who reports and what gets reported and what mm -hmm. gets counted as a rape or a sexual assault. And uh, who would have known that the Department of Education was going to, you know, secretary under Trump was going to be defining for us what counts as yes. sexual assault when she was made Secretary of Education. Okay, go on. You want to start with that or start with any sort of description of the changes? Uh, I think we need to zoom out a little bit more to talk about like what exactly Title IX is and how it relates to sexual assault. Essentially, an interpretation of the law started to come up that in order for it to be fully equal for all genders, that you had to prevent gender-based violence on campus. And that's why a Title IX office is often thought of in terms of preventing or dealing with the reports of sexual assault or other kinds of harassment or stalking. And in 2011, the Dear Colleague letter was put out. Uh, that was part of the Obama administration. It's not an actual form of legislation, but an, a letter recommending that schools adhere to certain kind of principles when they're following Title IX procedures. So part of the reason that Betsy DeVos was able to make these changes is because these weren't 
kind of codified into formal rules. They're more based on suggestions. And those rules and suggestions really helped in that title, that Dear Colleague letter really helped make the process a little bit easier for survivors and made more sense given the context that they were in. So they initially talked about setting lower standards and and made some suggestions about processes for reporting. And those are going to be the major changes we're going to overview as part of these changes that Betsy DeVos has put into place. So I think one of the difficulties of this is that they released these suggested revisions a while ago and asked the public for comment. And it essentially feels to me like they decided to disregard all of those public comments. Yeah. <laughs> got to do it, right? I, you can yeah. see her at her big fancy mahogany desk saying, well, we got to do it. Yeah. You intern over there, you read all these comments, okay? And get back to me if there's anything you really think I need to consider. (laughs) Yeah. And something tells me that intern just never had a meeting with Betsy DeVos again, if that's the case. (laughs) None of those kind of comments were considered. So there was a couple kind of really big changes. So there's a higher standard of evidence now needed to prove gender-based kind of violence claims. So the wording seems really small. So I think it is change to forgot the name. Are you talking about preponderance of evidence versus clear and convincing? Yes. Okay. But that's, that's up to the university to decide, Mm -hmm. right? So, so they can choose the worse or the the stricter standard of those two. And you're afraid that they will. Yes. So I already got a notification from UMass Boston that they updated their title nine policies to be consistent with this. Really? And did they choose that? I believe they chose these new standards. Let me double check. But, I don't want to be talking smack. Well, it's one or the other. As I, you, They can use either. Yeah, preponderance mm-hmm. of evidence or clear and convincing. And we're thinking clear and convincing is the higher standard, like beyond a reasonable doubt. And preponderance right. of evidence is the lower standard, which is like 51% or 50.0001% in that mm-hmm. favor. And I think if you've got 50% of the evidence there, that's, I mean, 51%. It's good enough for me. I'd, I'd prefer that, I think, if clear and convincing. I mean, this is legal language that we don't know whatever about. But what yeah. did you choose at UMass Boston? So the changes that UMass Boston put through was they added the ability of the accused to submit questions for the investigator to ask witnesses or the respondents. Yeah, that's true Um, for everybody. That's part of the revisions. Yeah, mm -hmm. good. I mean, that I don't think is such a a bad thing. I think that that's fine to submit questions that your representative can ask. Mm -hmm. You now have to be there when those questions are asked. I don't know if you needed to be there before, but now the accuser has to be there, but they can be there by video conferencing. So uh, they could show their face and have like earphones on like us and they can be turned off and they can be nodding, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, and that sort of thing. Nobody said their mic has to be on. (laughs) right okay but somehow they have to be there (laughs) i was mistaken looking at this email apparently they hadn't select they haven't selected a a level of evidence required so i'm sorry you mass for oh good we can influence them now let's start influencing yeah i know and you know the title nine um (laughs) investigator on campus or whatever they're called Yes. So for someone who's not as familiar with sexual assault stuff, I think it feels weird to be arguing over a standard of evidence. 
But for me, there's a couple reasons why it's really important. One is that the ways that sexual assault often happen do not allow for the creation of evidence, right? Often it's between two people. There's not a text message exchange to help support a survivor or something like that. So that for us to kind of really be in line with our goal of believing survivors, it really puts a higher burden of proof on the survivor. It sure does. I do want to mention that just yesterday I read an article that said one out of three sexual assaults on campuses are witnessed by somebody else. Oh. But it's still yeah. only a third. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. That's why bystanding uh, education it's so is so important. important. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well. But, well, um, you need to plug the habit website. Okay, so where are we? So we're talking about the preponderance of the evidence versus clear and convincing, and mm. that somehow it seems like there's going to be a higher standard now. Then we talked about how the new now both the accuser and the accused need to be there at some sort of meeting, and that there needs to be an investigator that's separate from the impartial judge. Like, I don't know why that's a change to say the judge has to be impartial, but maybe they're trying to separate out who is, who's in charge. I don't, I think probably people who are assigned to Title IX on campuses are, I mean, we're back to this whole thing, Madeline, about experts. You know, who, who, who does research on rape and becomes an expert on that? People with a vested interest in stopping rape, right? Usually feminists, okay? Yeah. Who is going to be a Title IX officer? Somebody who cares. Well, somebody who cares about discrimination, right? But that investigator then will be seen as biased because they care about discrimination. So we need to get an impartial person. And I think, you know, in in the realm of how people perceive these things, impartial means... I know nothing. Like, get on your jury a bunch of people who know nothing. Yeah. And that's a really concerning kind of standard to have because we know that people don't respond in the ways that you'd expect them to after an assault. They don't appear the way that you'd like them to. And that there is a lot of kind of rape myths that the average person still believes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so to have a, a judge who's not as informed on those issues and might actually be replicating rape myths as part of their adjudication process is super concerning. Well, I think I'll volunteer to be one of those impartial judges for UMass Boston since they're going oh. to have to choose those. I'll, I'll write to um, our friend Ashley and, and say, as you're considering who could be an impartial judge, I have a few nominees. <laughs> Well, now and that I is not new- to say I believe everybody all the time. It's just that I I refuse to I refuse to give up the the right to start off by believing a victim, given everyone else starts off by not believing. Not everyone, mm-hmm. but this presumed innocence standard I just don't think works. I mean, at, I don't least, think so either. You know, presume that this could be true. I think that's the perfect way to start. And and I just hate when people interpret that hashtag believe victims to mean always believe victims. Victims never lie. That just seems mm. like a conservative reframing of that hashtag Absolutely. in order to, to mix up the minds of liberals and say, well, you know, I don't want to be too extreme. <laughs> 
I'm still mad at my friends over the Tara Reid. I think that's fair. I would be too. But I think part of the desire to have a more conservative kind of angle on this is what's pushing Title IX processes to look more like legal processes. Because this definitely has been pushed to be much closer to the way that we think about court cases, right? Especially that presumed innocent part, a higher standard of evidence and the ability to kind of cross-examine folks. Well, right. They have the rape shield law as part of it, though. So that you're you're absolutely right that they're trying to make it more consistent with the legal system. I mean, and that's a good thing that you're not allowed to ask sexual history questions, but they're applying it to both the accused and the accuser. So I don't know. I don't know. It seems to me like there's, there's not, it's not equal to ask a victim, do you sleep around a lot and then use that against her if she got raped or to Mm -hmm. ask a perpetrator, have you raped before and use that against him? It seems to me like one, one has to do with whether you lie and whether you rape. And the other one has to do with just your sexual practices. It doesn't, I understand if you want to ask both of them, what's your history of lying? What's your history of misreporting to a victim? And what's your history Mm -hmm. of, but your sexual practice just doesn't seem to be your, you know, sexual experiences just don't seem to be relevant for a victim, for a perpetrator. Of course, if he's been accused several times before of raping women on campus, it's relevant. Yeah. It's just, it's surprising to me. I think, you know, so much of this is guided by the idea that sex itself is the problem. Because that, that, that's the only reason I can understand asking about a, a victim's sexual history. Really, I, I don't understand. Right, right. Well, I think it's because there's this, there's still a stigma against women who might enjoy sex from various partners. And that uh, having a reputation for that, if you were to get harmed by doing that, then Mm -hmm. there's like, well, you asked for a kind of thing. It's like the, let's hold women responsible for walking alone at night if they get raped at night, right? Yeah. Um, You should have known, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, sadly, we see that that stigma against uh, women, but not men who have casual sex. I'm sorry, I'm using that 60 phrase of sleeping around. (laughs) That's so derogatory, right? But who have casual sex, which is not uncommon for certain years in college, you know, first year and maybe sophomore year. It seems like people settle down by their junior and senior (laughs) year and do their homework, get their, you know, they're in their majors, get Mm -hmm. their partners, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever. But yeah, so that's the stigma of that, that that uh, is inherent in that uh, rape shield uh, law change or application. Mm -hmm. So what else is changing? They also, coaches are no longer uh, required to report sexual misconduct. Say what? Big change. Mm -hmm. Say what? Wait, why? Why not? Um, They're no longer part of the definition of employees that have to are mandated reporters. But why? What, what's the reasoning about coaches? They have too many sexual assaults, so how can they keep track of them? <laughs> it's different if you're a faculty member because it's not, you're not going to see that so often. It's going to stand out. But, you know, those poor coaches. Yeah. I'm, I guess I I'm believe... thinking of certain sports other, uh, over others. Sorry, please don't condemn me for not distinguishing between sports that encourage sexual assaults and sports that are super respectful. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't want to necessarily walk into that hornet's nest with my new position. Yeah, murder hornet's nest. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Definitely. Um, so part of the change is that they want to respect the autonomy of students who might not want their information to be shared. This is from an ESPN um, article. So they're trying to say that colleges and universities can choose to change the designation of employees if they wish to protect the autonomy of students. I personally, that doesn't feel right to me. This It feels more convenient. And I, I guess part of my concern about these Title IX changes is that it changes the duty of the university from ethically upholding the needs of people who have been victimized to much more closely balancing the rights of the accused. And given the society that we live in, I just don't feel like that's genuinely respecting the autonomy of the individual. Oh my God, coaches get paid so much too. I mean, they can take a little extra training on this. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not like you're asking somebody, some low salaried individual who's, you know, to take on this extra responsibility or something like that. I wonder what that comes from. I mean, given that people have said that these changes really aim to protect institutions from lawsuits and that there have been like hundreds of students who feel they were wrongly accused suing schools and half of them, I read, have settled or won these lawsuits. So how is it protecting the school by saying coaches i mean let's look at it that way so what's how does the university benefit from saying coaches don't have to report i guess if that's an area in which there might be quite a bit um, of sexual assault that's noticed or looked over like the horrific stuff that happened at um was it ohio state was it you know i mean countless i don't even even know at this point i mean of the of the horrible um uh, trainer who was um, oh Michigan State whatever but Urban anyway yeah. I get them confused my in-laws will hate me <laughs> why are they there I get those confused and apparently they're rivals Michigan State and U of M um, oh. but they oh. both have Michigan in the name and my family likes one over the other and I can't remember which for the life <laughs> they're, you're still in trouble then <laughs> you gotta remember which one they like but anyway i guess i think that that just seems too hard for them to control and so um you know well, so that's why it's shocking to me that there have been so many lawsuits because in my experience of the title nine process and i worked over a summer to redact title nine case information as part of a research project is that these the existing rules and regulations were already kind of in favor of the perpetrator. Most of the things that I looked at, nobody was found responsible. The only thing I can think of as to like why the expectations for coaches to be changed would be so that athletes don't have to be suspended from play. Oh. Which can oh, sometimes be part so of the much process. Money. Yeah, follow the money. Good, good. Okay, we've got that one. Mm-hmm. What about this thing about off-campus venues? Like if it's, uh, that's a change in the rules too. So let's say like, they have these things called final clubs at Harvard. I have no idea what they are, but I think that it's, you know, it started as a way to study for finals together. 
but mm-hmm. I guess there are a lot of parties and a considerable percentage of sexual assaults happen at these final clubs. And yet it's off campus and it's, you know, these final clubs are student organizations that aren't necessarily mm-hmm. approved. So if that were to happen there, if, for example, the history department says, let's go down to Murphy's for, right, and it happens at that bar and it's not part of the university's responsibility. Or Um, a campus like UMass Boston's where there's so few kind of actual folks living there. Most of the students are commuters. Or what about fraternities and sororities? Are those counted as on campus or off campus? Um, Those I think are considered on campus. But if a student lives off campus in an apartment and let's say they have a stalker, okay, that doesn't, that stalking is taking place off campus and so has nothing to do with the university, even if it's a student in that student's, you know, uh, class or cohort or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I can see the trickiness of that, but I don't think that you should just wipe out any, any uh, university or college student related event that takes place off campus, given we stretch, you know, our needs across outside of the physical campus all the time. Yeah. Okay, let me look at what else we have to we have to look at here. Not a single investigator. Oh, so when you listen to Betsy DeVos or you read this these guidelines now, there's all this like feminist language in it, as if the intern, you know, oh. put up, you know, be in her ear say, saying, use the word empowered, okay? We like empowerment. Mm-hmm. So victims are now empowered or potential victims or alleged or whatever they call them to receive certain supports without having to grieve uh, what happened. That means, you know, do a grievance. Okay. So this I see as saving the money too, because they're going to get a lot of what they need without having to go through this trial. But they're, they're selling this as a real, that, as that they're offering all these supports, uh, but they should offer those supports, whether or not the student. I was going to say, they should have always done that. Yeah. They should have always done that. And I'm sure survivors were creatively trying to find ways to get those supports anyway. I mean, that's the entire reason rape crisis centers were created, uh, so that you can get those supports without having to report. So I don't understand what... Okay, so if your assaulter is in your a class or a dorm, you can be reassigned to a new class, but you can't ask that he is, right? Correct. That's and that's <laughs> consistent regardless of Title IX, that that sometimes happened under old Title IX, but this kind of more uniformly kind of creates that expectation. You can, without any question, get a no contact order. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty good. I don't know what will happen to the person, though, if he, you know, makes some contact, right? Because the school, you know, well, let's say that person harasses the accuser. You know, that's going against the no contact order. What's the school going to do then? They're going to give some, if they don't give some sort of punishment for that, then it doesn't make any difference. And if they do, then the student can then sue that he's being wrongly accused and made to have no contact for the wrong reason. So that's, we can throw that one out. And counseling, of course, any student can get counseling. So yeah. You know, there are long waiting lists sometimes in counseling centers. So maybe a good way to get counseling sooner is to create a little. Yeah, we know that all of the college students are just scheming ways to get into therapy quicker. Definitely. Because therapy works in those six sessions you're allowed before you're kicked out, right? Works really well. Especially when it's every other week because your college counseling center is overburdened. Yeah. But that is another 
another topic for another day. And it doesn't I think, have anything to do with sex, right? Yeah. It's ethics. But ethics everywhere. <laughs> you pointed out really astutely that they've kind of co-opted some of this language that you or I might use. And I think what's tricky about this is that if you read it, it doesn't seem that bad these changes but you have to have this kind of expertise to understand what the actual implications of this would be for a potential person who's reporting on the ground and it just seems like a swing in the exact wrong direction like for me the title nine policies weren't radical enough like i wish that they had made more protections for survivors but Well, who knows what will happen and what kind of backs pendulum backswing will happen in the new in a new era. I just hope there will be one, a new era. But I guess there's always a glass half full perspective that I try to offer. And maybe maybe that backlash, not backlash, that pendulum swing will happen soon. I mean, this is an election year, right? I mean, one can oh, only you know what? hope. We forgot to talk about this idea of it used to be that a hostile environment or some kind of sexual oh, assault yes. was either severe or pervasive now it has to be severe and pervasive i don't even know what pervasive means and like i'm a college professor does it mean like every day it's happening it's like all over your body what's pervasive i don't know and they've changed it so that it has to be objectively offensive which is really, really complicated, especially when you think about the ways that sexual harassment often looks, right? It can be something really aggressive, like, hey, sweet cheeks. But more often, people are more aware that they can't say stuff like that. So it can be more unwelcome advances that aren't as explicit. And who is an unbiased judge of that? Everyone has an opinion about what's offensive or not in this. I assume that they'll take the person with the least you know, the least knowledge or the least um, caring about this issue to be objective as people often do. But anyway, so, I mean, there's not much more to say about severe or pervasive or and pervasive. I mean, I do think that there is something in the law. Now, I'm really not a lawyer and so don't take any legal knowledge from me as true. There's something about an eggshell defense or something like I think that Hmm. if somebody was vulnerable to begin with and it hurt them, whatever you did hurt them a lot. Like if they had like, I think it's the eggshell. Oh gosh, I'm going to mess this up. But is the eggshell thing kind of like the equivalent of pre-existing conditions? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ah. Like, you know, so that if, you know, and if their eggshell cracked, if this really disturbed them, that one remark, one hostile sexist remark too many really harmed them, then... Mm -hmm. Is it severe or isn't it severe? It's severe to that person, but it might not be severe to this independent judge, whoever that is. I think that right now feminists should get up and start writing arguments about who these independent judges should be at the university level, how they should be chosen uh, with what kinds of objectivity to look for. Yeah. So you were you were talking about the glass being half full and hoping that we are going to swing the other way. I can only hope that that will be the case, but I definitely think if you're listening to this and you're on a college campus, talk to your Title IX person about how you feel about this. I'm definitely kind of based on your example, Sharon, going to be contacting the OSU Title IX person to be like, hello, I would like to be an adjudicator, please. Thank you. Hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't kind of change this. I mean, the way we talk, somebody outside might think that we're just going to condemn any guy who does something and that we would be unfair and that we would just, 
you know, come to such a hearing with a lot of hatred. But, you know, I am, you know, mother of two sons. I've seen my sons do things that were maybe uh, construed as sexist or harmful. In fact, I even wrote an op-ed once when my son was in fifth grade and he did something that that uh, was considered sexual harassment because to me at the time, I thought, what? Can I tell this <laughs> little story, please? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it was right after uh, the sex, you know, it was the same week they had the sex talk where they all got Old Spice deodorant afterwards. So, Oh, I didn't realize there were gifts within. Oh my God. (laughs) Right. Because you know, what does sex say to any fifth grader, except you're going to (laughs) smell. But anyway, so it was the same week. And then there was a little girl in his class who was doing a dance on the stage and she was swinging a belt around. And okay. And his friend, his cute little friend whispered to him, that belt looks like a penis. And my son just cracked up and couldn't Which is stop hilarious laughing. as a fifth grader. Right? And they I both laugh got at that reported too. and oh. told off and have a, you know, and it was considered sexual harassment. I think because it had sex in it because a penis is sex. I don't know. But anyway, so I heard, I, I got so upset. I wrote an op-ed, it got published and I hurt this lovely teacher's feelings. I, I should have thought more that she's a lovely teacher and her heart's in the right place to protect girls from sexual harassment. And this girl felt really bad when they were laughing at her little dance with the thing. I know it's our society that can't distinguish between sexual harassment and in sexual talk. And which makes me think that we are the best kinds of people to be these objective yeah. uh, determinators, deciders, judges of uh, what is sexual harassment, what is severe, what is pervasive, what is just plain wrong. Yeah, I know that you've taught a variety of different classes where you talk about kind of sex in them. I think one of the greatest indicators for me that we, that kind of proves your point is the amount of times that like students are unable to say very basic sexual terms out loud. Um, So like, you know, saying like orgasm or ejaculation is like so uncomfortable that in order for you to be somewhat comfortable sifting through these complaints, you have to be able to at least have enough comfort with sex period to say a word like that out loud and not to look like you want to just immediately like run out of the room. Right. Well, we're going to do another podcast on what it's like to teach about sex to undergraduates and to uh, master students and, and all that based on the teacher who um, got in trouble for maybe rightly so for taking his class to a strip club and, and, uh, and talked about sex in a hot tub. Right. Oh boy. I think he also had a lap dance at that sex club. Whatever. We'll get into that later and we'll talk (laughs) about where our boundaries are and where they should be. But today, are there any final thoughts you have about Title IX and uh, the future of sexual assault on campus and maybe something about what we can all do to work with these new rules? Mm. So, it it feels like there's a lot of different possibilities for where everyone can kind of focus their efforts for change. And given that there's so many like survivors, it can be tempting to just focus on supporting individuals, but systemic kind of applications of rules like this 
really matter because they shape our expectations for what survivors do, how they should act, and um, the way they should report. We're never going to have accurate information about sexual assault until reporting processes are more designed for survivors rather than perpetrators. And so even though it can be really tempting just to support the individual, the systemic work is really important. So I hope that even though they weren't open to some of these changes at the federal level, I really encourage everyone to kind of get in contact with their local Title IX office at whatever educational institution you might be affiliated with. We talked about this today only in applications to college, but these rules do apply for K-12 K schools as well. So even if you have a kiddo who's younger, talking with your Title IX office about how you feel about these applications, I think is likely to change how, what parts of these policies are actually adopted by individual educational institutions. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. That's so important too. I mean, especially because we have this sexual ethics curriculum too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so needed for uh, high school and middle school students. You know, it might be a good idea for us to think through some things at the high school and the middle school level and uh, podcast or blog about that to help them out through this. um, Absolutely. Through this new Title IX. So, um, and also there's always just activism on campus. If a victim Mm -hmm. knows there is a solid group of men and women who are going to support that person through this process, just like we all did for Christine Blasey Ford. Mm -hmm. Who knew that she was going to be run over by that train that wasn't going to stop, but did it anyway. A victim needs that because they can come out okay. They not, you know, wonderfully, they can come out okay as long as they know there's at least a body of people near them, around them that they can turn to who'll support what they're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And there may not be justice in this world, but hey, we have a president who has been accused multiple times of uh, sexual assault and even rape. We live in a world where powerful men are not, you know, held accountable. And if it happens on a personal basis, it's, um, it's hard to take, but you would, it's good to know you're in good company and that this is, that you're part of a a bunch of women who have suffered from this problem in our society, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the way that lots of folks kind of cope with this. I think I 100% agree and like really have like a heart full of love because of what you just said right now, Sharon. And I wanted to kind of hammer that point home because you know, research shows that re- that really predicts the mental health symptoms of survivors after the fact. Like if someone is supportive to a survivor just once, that it can really kind of change their kind of trajectory afterwards. Like you said, they're they're not going to be great or fabulous, but they can be okay. Yeah, so yeah. a balance. Well, thank of both- you for this heart full of love. <laughs> I I think that's a way to end. Um, And a heart full of love to any of the victims or survivors, however you refer to yourself listening to this. Whether you came forward or not, we understand the many reasons not to Mm -hmm. come forward, disclose to anyone. And we understand uh, that if you did and you didn't get the outcome you wanted, that you were still brave and wonderful to do so anyway. Absolutely. Okay, so I guess we'll go to our sign-off, which is... Yeah, thanks so much, Dan. Appreciate you editing and, and revising this podcast. 
Yeah. And thanks so much. You're one of the good ones, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else, be good. <laughs> <laughs>